the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Well, hello. Welcome. It is Thursday. Time flies when you're having fun, right? Thursday, the 9th of May. And as we head into another program, great to have you with us. Good to keep you company on your ride home or wherever you might be headed on this Thursday afternoon. And we've got hopefully some insightful and stimulating conversation to uh, to keep your mind bright and sharp, even here as you're concluding your day and you're going to get home to the family and kids or dinner or whatever might be on your agenda tonight. So we're going to keep you company. Joining us will be Ken Harrison later on in tonight's program. Ken, of course, is the chairman of the board and president of Promise Keepers. Folks have been around for a while. Remember the impact of Promise Keepers right here in the Bay Area. Ken has written a new book called Rise of the Servant Kings. What the Bible says about being a man. Interesting conversation. We'll get to that coming up a little bit later on in this first hour. Also joining us, hour number two tonight, Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee, will drop by for a visit. A major movement afoot in no less than five states regarding issues of abortion, some of it encouraging, some of it demonstrating we've got some work to do. We'll find out what's going on news-wise in the pro-life arena when Brian Johnston joins us tonight. As we lead off, we dive into a topic. It's an uncomfortable one, and yet it's one, it's a reality that we as the church, I think, need to come to grips with, and that is what's going on? Why have we seen, in particular over the last decade, decade and a half, such significant drop in not just church attendance, but even those Americans who identify as believers. Witness, for example, according to some research provided by Gallup, that half of Americans identify as church members. And while at face value that might seem encouraging, be mindful that that figure is down 20% from 20 years ago. I don't know that there's any time correlation here, but to say that every year we lose a percentile. We have a growing number of people that are the unidentified in America, meaning that they do not purport to associate with Protestant, Catholic, Jewish, Muslim, none of it. They are people apparently seemingly of no faith at all. So why this decline? Is it a changing face in demographics in America today? Well, trying to understand what this means is a big challenge, but at the end of the day, the one singular challenge that we consistently have, data like this or not, and that is the responsibility of the church to do its job, to raise up Christ, to create disciples, and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Joining us now with some insights on not just this broad and important task 
but uh, maybe some bit of understanding in relationship to these new polling numbers is Pastor Sam Rohr. Sam, of course, is president of the American Pastors Network, heard nationally on the radio program Stand in the Gap. And Pastor Sam, as always, great to have you with us. I, I've, I've got to think, particularly from a pastoral standpoint, when you hear these kinds of numbers, 20% drop in those who identify or are engaged as church members in just the last 20 years. That's not an encouraging number. Greg, uh, <clears throat> no, it's not. And uh, it's not at all encouraging. In some respects, it's not entirely um, shocking or surprising uh, because that that can be seen. I, mean, I think when we drive around our neighborhoods on Sunday mornings, um, there's less activity of people getting up and going to church. I think it's uh, pretty observable, but the numbers are fairly shocking. <clears throat> Excuse me, and as you said, um, dropping 20% basically in 20 years is a very steady uh, and marked decline. And if you plot that out another 20 years, if nothing stops, you will have a society that looks far more like Europe than what we know the United States to be today. So there are reasons for it. The report does show that there are some causes and there are some correlations that we can make, but uh, certainly as a nation, we are far less God-conscious. We are therefore far less religious, however one would define that. And uh, we as a nation definitely are moving in a direction where we think we can go it more alone than we need to go with God. I'm curious from your perspective, uh, as we try to sort of understand what's happening here and in doing so, hopefully give us some insights as to what we need to be doing, the steps that we need to be taking to to stop the, the atrophying of the influence of the church in America. Is it an issue of a problem with the pews, a problem with the pulpit, a problem with people or, or culture in general, or maybe a combination of all three? Well, I actually think it's a combination of all three. Um, and, it, and I think the, the numbers, as they would indicate, uh, overall, the most... Uh, the, the, the largest contributing factor in that 20% decline comes from the fact of there are a larger number of people who are just declaring them to see, as you just described at the beginning, they are nuns, N-O-N-E-S. They are <clears throat> not religious. They are not involved in, uh, in any aspect of worship. Uh, that category of just, when you say irreligious or not, not at all, that's the larger category. Uh, however, if one looks at the numbers, it would indicate that uh, those who uh, have been the largest category profile demographic-wise would be that the younger you go, the less involved in church a person becomes. So if you move down millennially, move down to Generation X, means the further the younger our American citizens, our children become, the less interest that they have in God. That's another indicator that's marked. But even of those who are describing themselves as religious, as sometimes going to church, the number of those who are not any longer members of church, meaning they're those who do go, their level of commitment to that particular church is also significant dropping. So it really it's about every category that you look at, Craig. 
Yeah, to be sure. And, you know, we've we've all seen, perhaps, if we've uh, paid any attention, uh, the decline in certainly um, historical normative, I'll call it even, um, biblical exegesis from the pulpit. Uh, we see greater degrees of, of preachers, I think, that are under the pressure to try and perform, and sometimes that leads to making compromise because um, the Baptist church down the street has four times as many of people showing up on a Sunday morning as here, and the pulpit committee or the board wants to know what's happening and how can we improve it, and so suddenly now we, we start to see compromise begin to creep in from the preaching from the pulpit. And I think with that, too, there has been a a steady shift taking place that people tend to embrace more of cultural Christianity than biblical Christianity, because cultural Christianity, to the degree of being part of the crowd and God's going to bless you and uh, put money in the bank and make you healthy and all that good stuff, well, that sounds very appealing. Biblical Christianity that, that speaks of taking up one's cross and suffering on behalf of the gospel of Jesus Christ and, uh, and abandoning all for his sake, that sounds perhaps to the flesh a lot less appealing. Well, it is, and I think that that's a very clear indicator. And you asked uh, earlier what were the contributing factors. I, I mean, you mentioned them again. Certainly the culture as a whole that has become less God-conscious has been moving far more away into the concept of pluralism, that really everybody is equal, and encouraging the concept that no one can or should stand up and say that Jesus Christ is the way. Uh, the fact that anybody can make a singular statement uh, and repeat exactly what Jesus Christ said, I am the, the way, the truth, and the life, becomes a, a very, very politically incorrect statement to make today in a pluralistic society which has become more of the honored uh, position uh, for the culture to be than where one used to be, where the God-fearing culture. So the culture has been moving away very, very clearly. But I think within that, part of the reason the culture has moved away is because the pulpit began to move away from the definitive statement that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and beginning to back up and, 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 uh, and present a softer message in their mind, a softer message, which became a less true message, a less genuine message. And if we don't present the whole gospel of Jesus Christ, the whole counsel of God, then, frankly, what is there to offer the dying person who is in great need of, um, of, uh, of, uh, of, 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 of spiritual renewal? Uh, we're, we're giving them a part of a loaf rather than the whole loaf, and the attractiveness is, is, is gone. So the pulpit, I believe, Craig, has contributed, and Christians themselves who, who, who profess a walk with Christ have uh, have really factored in this mindset that a Christian means being a Christian on a Sunday. But when I leave church and during the week, then I have freedom to go and do what I want to do. These factors together, I think, have been heavy contributors to, to why uh, the average person says, why do I need to go to church? Um, I don't really get anything when I go. I think these factors kind of work together. Not just uh, then faults in the way we preach, but also in the way we live. Um, they lived out life that is a compelling one. Um, that, that is a set-apart life. 
seems to be kind of gone by the wayside in favor of more groupthink that tends to be a watered-down version of the gospel. And so, as Pastor Sam Rohrer points out, those around who look at our lives and say, well, gee, there's not a lot much going on there. They seem to have the same problems and struggles and issues as I do. They don't seem to be any happier. They don't seem to have any more joy in their life. They don't seem to be any more confident. So uh, what does, at the end of the day, any of this have to offer me in a practical standpoint? And the answer is, if we're not living out the gospel in a fashion that is attractive to others, then is it any wonder that we have a difficult time attracting them to Christ? Pastor Sam Rohr, president of the American Pastors Network, we're talking about the results of a relatively new Gallup poll that demonstrates that there has been a sharp decline over the last 20 years of church membership, and not only that, but a sharp decline in people overall in America who identify at all as a believer. And perhaps not surprising, um, some denominations have been harder hit than others. We'll talk a bit about that, and most importantly, talk about what we can do to stem the tide of this decline. It's 17 after the hour. Let's pause and get you an update here on some traffic, then back with more of our conversation with Pastor Sam Rohrer on this edition of Lifeline. Traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. One of the issues in in terms of uh, decline, not just church attendance outright, but even the sense of the way people identify with any level of church affiliation. Um, Interestingly enough, barely three-quarters of Americans now identify with any religion at all, and only half claim membership in a church or synagogue. And, of course, as we've delineated with Pastor Sam Rohrer, this rate of decline in church membership has been sharp over the last two decades. And and it's interesting to note, I I wonder, we try to sort of look at the timeline and ascertain, well, what was going on two years ago, I'm sorry, 20 years ago in the country that that sort of began this slow decline off the cliff? And I I suppose, as we've touched on, it's been a variety of issues uh, taking place both in the pews, in the pulpit, in the culture. Um, And then there's the other issue um, uniquely, and that is, as I suggested before the break, and that is the way we live. And so often there has been this uh, notion that, well, if we if we keep our faith a private personal matter, that's the most important thing. We don't want to be too pushy. And yet uh, the Scripture tells us that we're to go out into the highways and byways and compel them to come in. But Pastor Rohr, not a lot of compulsion taking place these days, sadly, and I suppose that's very contributory to the notion that as we see new immigrants come to this country that perhaps heretofore have not been exposed to the gospel, that what they see and what they find here is either sadly hollow or just doesn't seem to ring true. Um, I think, unfortunately, that is true, and, and we know that we know that in a, in a, from a number of different ways, Craig. Uh, one, in reality, clearly, uh, the light and the salt, as Christ has told us to be in Matthew chapter 5, says, you are the light of the world, you are the salt of the earth. He said, but if the salt loses its savor, what good is it except to be trodden underfoot? And if the light does not shine, well then, 
how will anyone then glorify God in heaven, who is the source of light, which should be reflected in and through all of those who say they have seen the light, except to Christ as their Savior. So there's a very clear pattern of what God's plan is. So if there is no light, then then one is uh, quite content to stumble along in the darkness, the darkness of sin, the darkness of a, of a culture that does not have hope because they have not seen the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ and God's plan for redemption. And the Christian is the person who is placed here by God in his economy to be that light and to point people to the God of heaven and who then demonstrates his love for mankind mankind, through Jesus Christ, who gave his Son to die for us on the cross, the plan of redemption. Now that is the really great news. And I, I believe, Craig, from other sources of documentation and research, separate from this Gallup report that just talks about pretty much membership and church attendance, there's Barna research that indicates that I believe what really is at the heart of the problem is that there is not much light. And as we talk about not no authenticity, no no persuasiveness for the person who is walking in darkness, which we all were before we came, if we know Jesus Christ as our Savior, we're all in the darkness at one point. And that is that the Barna research would say 74% of Americans say they are Christians. I think probably everyone listening would say 74%? How can that be? not true, and they would be correct. It's not true, because when you break them down and walk down through, and you find out a half of them don't believe that Jesus Christ actually lived a totally sinless life, and over 50% don't believe that the Bible is all God's Word, and you begin to work it down through, you're down to a number, according to Barna Research, that would indicate that true believers, true life, the possessors of true salt and true... Um, and true regeneration are in probably the seven, eight, nine, ten percent range at most, which means the bulk of our churches who have people going to them, according to the numbers, may have to half of them of that church doesn't really know Jesus Christ as Savior. They are convenient Christians, the word you use for cultural Christians. They may go to church, but they don't know the God of the Bible. So I ask generally when I talk to pastors, I say, now when you think about that in your congregations, is it a wonder, perhaps, that there is not more impact on our culture? Uh, it, I think that that is the reason. How can you share the light if you don't have it? How can you be the salt if you don't possess it? How can you talk about the good news if you really don't and have never experienced it yourself? That, I think, is at the heart of all of these numbers that we're talking about we have many who think they are because they were born in America, because they're generally good people, maybe, but not defined as Christians with a regenerated heart, according as the Bible lays it out. That's what we need, true I, I, regeneration, true believers. I guess one of the, the big compelling questions here is we look at the steady decline among certain population groups down through the decades, the so-called traditionalists, these are folks born prior to 1945, 74% were active in church. Baby boomers, those born between 1946 and 64, 66%. Generation Xers, 65 to 79, 65%. Millennials, born from 1980 
to 2,057%. That slow, steady decline there. And then I guess we come down to that, you know, which came first, the chicken or the egg question. Is this a slow, steady decline that has led to what we see of the atrophying of, of the teaching of the unadulterated gospel and of faithful biblical exegesis? Or has the decline in staying true to the, the, the historical, traditional faith and this move towards church is not a matter of fellowship and Bible teaching, but entertainment on Sunday and uh, things of this sort that have that have ultimately led. So which do you see this? Is there any way in which we can get a sense of which of the two and or what in what direction, I guess I should ask you, Pastor Rohr, did this this influence take place? I, I think I think it would be probably more accurate to say that as the as the focus of the pulpit and its adherence on a inspired authoritative word of god lessened the preaching of the word has lessened and it's become more comfortable for people to go to church perhaps but not get anything that really changes their life Thirty percent of the pulpits in America, even those who say they're evangelical, again, according to the to the numbers, the bar, I'll use Barnard research again. Thirty percent of those pulpits in America don't. Only thirty percent actually believe that the scripture is authoritative. So you're you're speaking about seventy percent of the pulpits of America don't believe that God's word is in fact all God's word, which means they have already made a choice to pick and choose what portions of Scripture they want to preach about, and, of course, which ones are not preached about, the controversial ones, the, the ones that really go to the heart of saying sin is sin, and this is what God says about this aspect in, in idolatry and adultery and murder and all of the things that are involved in covetousness, those aren't preached about. We know that. Well, if you don't believe that the Bible is authoritative, and I think that's the bigger source of it, then why then speak about those issues that disturb people? Well, frankly, if a person doesn't get disturbed in their sin to understand the fact that they are sinners in need of Jesus Christ, they have no reason to look to the light and to trust in Christ as their only way to heaven. So we've got a person has to understand they're dead and going to hell if they don't trust in Jesus Christ before they understand the love of God, and Jesus Christ who died for our sins. Pastor Sam Rohrer, president of the American Pastors Network, with some insights on this alarming study released by the Gallup Poll that focuses on the reality that we've seen a significant decrease in church membership over the past two decades. More information available on the web at AmericanPastorsNetwork.net. Our thanks to Pastor Sam Rohrer for being with us. And let's uh, turn a corner, shall we? 5.30, let's get a look at traffic for you here on this Thursday edition of Lifelong. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
All right, welcome back to the conversation. We continue on here, the Thursday edition of Lifeline from KFAX. And I think as we were talking a moment ago with Pastor Rohrer about notions of what authentic Christianity looks like, there's also another important um, ancillary topic that uh, more and more these days, based on what we see in the news, is, um, is becoming trying and troubling. And that is what exactly does authentic masculinity look like, or um, maybe even uh, more precisely put, um, how should men live out their lives based on Scripture, and how should that impact every aspect of their lives and everyone that they touch, from their employees or fellow workers to their families and, and ultimately to their relationship with God? Well, a new book helps to outline exactly what God has in store for proper Bible-based masculinity. The book is called Rise of the Servant Kings, What the Bible Says About Being a Man. And with me today is the author of this new book, the president and chairman of Promise Keepers, Ken Harrison. And Ken, great to have you on the program. Oh, thanks, Greg. This is an interesting topic because these days there is so much uh, surrounding this issue. Uh, masculinity seems to be under attack at at every turn. In fact, we're we're even raising serious questions about uh, even the gender roles and and the issue of gender dysphoria or gender gender fluidity. Uh, constantly sending out messages to suggest that um, if a man is a man's man, there must be something wrong with you. Take us back to, if you would, what is not man's opinion on the topic, but God's design when it comes to being a true man's man. Yeah, one of the things that go into the book is uh, that we have an enemy, Satan, and he hates God. And when God created male and female, they were together the image of who he is, what his personality is. And so... Um, a man and a woman in a marriage, a fully masculine man, a fully feminine female, um, who come together in marriage are the best representation we have of the image of God. So when Satan attacks femininity or masculinity, he's attacking our very image of who God is. And so this, you know, the groundwork he's laying down for us looking down on true masculinity is really an attack on how we see our Creator. And, of course, in doing so, uh, literally turns a fire hose at the foundation of, of the family, of society. I mean, there's, um, there's more to this than just create, creating a, a, a sense of balance amongst the genders, isn't there? Well, it's our identity. Who are we as men, and what is our responsibility? And so if we don't know who we are, how are we supposed to pass on to our children who they are? How are we supposed to teach our, our sons to be young gentlemen who, who treat women with respect, who exercise self-control? How are we supposed to treat our daughters um, to cherish them themselves, to have self-esteem? And, uh, you know, the attack that we're seeing and uh, the sexual obsession we have in our country these days uh, because the access to pornography is just eviscerating masculinity in men. Um, they, they don't even, they're too much seeing people as objects for self-gratification rather than as human beings who have dreams and desires as sons and daughters of God, just like they are. Now, Ken, for the benefit of our listeners to kind of engage in full disclosure here, um, in in addition to your background working in uh, nonprofit ministries and, and certainly as 
the president and chairman of Promise Keepers. You also had quite a number of years in law enforcement. And I think to, to, to many people, they look at somebody that, that wears a badge and say, okay, boy, there's a, there's a job that really calls upon one to, to be a man's man. There's an awful lot of demand, uh, not only physically, but certainly um, intellectually in, in dealing with the day-to-day challenges of what it means to be on the front lines of, of being a peace officer. Uh, so in many respects, we could say that, that uh, you've got a lot of experience. You're, you're an expert in this field uh, in, in one regard. But I'm struck by the fact that the title of the book um, is not one that says, uh, the rise of the kings, uh, the rise of the man's man, but rather the rise of the servant kings, suggesting what might be counterintuitive to some that would say, well, gee, for a guy that's got a background as a peace officer, being a man's man, that would suggest that you've got to work on being the strong, dominant one, and yet a servant king, it almost seems to be at odds. You know, a true leader has empathy. A true leader is able to put him or herself in the shoes of the other person and walk around in him for a while, as Harry Truman said. Yeah, you know, as a policeman in South Central Los Angeles on the LAPD, um, I saw the effects of sin. I saw what happens when people don't have fathers who raise them, when uh, there's violence, there's sickness, the gangs destroying um, the violence of, of unchecked men. But I also saw, you know, I ran international businesses. I had at one time 22,000 employees. And I saw that crime and sin and sickness, they don't just come from guys wearing um, gang colors. They come from guys wearing suits and ties as well. And so um, what you see there is the opposite of how God lays it out. A leader creates freedom for people. He creates space for people to be who they are and to have a choice. And that's how Jesus, Jesus had some very harsh words, but he always left the choice to us. He was no tyrant. And so we see there, what is a true leader? It's someone who lays down his life for the people who are in his trust. And that's why Scripture says in Ephesians 5.25, that a husband loves his wife like Christ loved the church. And what did he do for the church? He was tortured to death for her. And he says he's now up in heaven, the bride, which is his church, he is working to, to present her spotless and blameless to his Father in heaven. And that needs to be our attitude with our wives, our kids, or anybody else in our charge, that we lay down our rights to ourselves um, for their good. That is what a man is. And it's interesting because historically within our culture and society, the message is quite often uh, very different. The notion of a man's need for the drive to succeed, the drive to lead, the uh, uh, the drive to make a mark on life. And yet, as you're suggesting, certainly as Scripture is teaching, if we want to go high, we need to go low, meaning if we want to be successful at all of those tasks in making our mark within our families, within our businesses, within our financial life, um, certainly within our community, it really then is incumbent upon one to understand what it means to go low, how to humble oneself, how to be able to submit ultimately to God in order to gain that kind of success. That's right. And, and let's not forget, the Bible says that we are to humble ourselves. And, and so many Christians sit around thinking, well, you know, God needs to do this for me, God needs to do that for me. The Bible tells us to humble ourselves. And how do we humble ourselves? We've got to let go of bitterness. We've got to let go of pride. Um, I'm sorry should be words that are always on our lips, not from a self-depreciating standpoint, but we have confidence and self-esteem to say, I'm sorry that I hurt you. Um, Always looking for the good of the other person. And that 
you know, and I think this is the reason we're facing such gender confusion nowadays is because we flipped from one extreme to the other. I mean, the, the, the view of a man as we were raised was James Bond. He was promiscuous. He drank a lot. He didn't have any feelings, you know, and he could kill somebody and then make a little quip and walk out the door. And that, that attitude is so broken, and the world has so reviled against it, that now we've flipped all the way over to effeminacy and really truly cowardice. And we see men who aren't willing to stand up for what's right because they're confused about what's right. And so, you know, this book is pretty tough. And the publisher told me, A, they've never promoted a book as much as they have this one, and it's Multnomah. It's a pretty big publisher. But B, they said we feel like this book should come with a warning on it because it's so direct. The, the police stories are so real and authentic that you know, Christian's books aren't written this way. And they said, well, this is how men need to be talked to. They need real, authentic truth. And it's not just older men. I see our younger men. 25 to 30 are, are desperate for truth. They're desperate for older men to teach them God's word about what is my identity as a man in Jesus Christ. And that's what I wanted to have come out through this book. And, you know, the the ultimate lesson of learning how to walk in humility, um, to be humble, is is such a challenge for us because it goes against our flesh, it goes against our e- our ego, it goes against everything that historically, culturally, we have been taught about what it means to be a man. As you say, sort of the 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 uh, James Bond um, uh, or the John Wayne sort of idealized version, which of course is both creations of Hollywood having nothing to do with the real example of of what it means to to walk humbly before the Lord. I think of Christ himself, as we've just recently marked um, Resurrection Sunday here in Easter. Um, Here a man who carried a cross up a hill, allowed himself to be nailed to that cross, to die on that cross so that through his shed blood we might find forgiveness and reconciliation and relationship with the very creator of the universe. And yet all that time as he bowed to allow the thorn of uh, the crown of thorns to be pressed into his head and took up his cross and carried it um, for as long as he could up to Golgotha and eventually um, dying on that cross, uh, so humbling, and yet to think, here is one who had the power at any moment who could have said, Father, no, and he could have stopped it all, who literally had the power over death and hell at his very fingertips. And then at the end, as we see in that scene in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, Lord, but rather thine be done. Interesting to note that, that, that of the images that we have of what it means to be a man's man, uh, the picture that we tend to run toward is the one with the guy with the gun who's going to be out there saving the day and, and being the hero. And yet the real hero in this story is the tremendous humility demonstrated by Christ and the tremendous sacrifice that he gave on our behalf. Preach it. <laughs> That's exactly right. Christ is the ultimate man. You know, I said to my sons, one of them is a college wrestler and one of them is uh, about to become a college lacrosse player. And I said to both of them, you know, work hard to be able to protect others because where meekness comes from is restrained power. Being a college wrestler, knowing that you're the toughest guy in the bar, and then being the one that turns you the cheek, now you've exercised humility. Now you've done something. To turn you the cheek because you're scared is, is, is not a compliment to you. But when you know that someone is assaulting you, putting you down, and then you turn you the cheek because even though you know that you could do something about it, now you've acted like Christ. We're visiting today with Ken Harrison. Ken is 
the president and chair of Promise Keepers. He's written a new book, uh, and as he mentioned, it's pretty straightforward. He draws from many years of experience in law enforcement to to show some real gritty, real um, real down to earth stories of confrontation and uh, decisions that need to be made that ultimately are demonstrative of what it means to be a real man, what it means to be a servant king. The book is called Rise of the Servant Kings, What the Bible Says About Being a Man. We'll take a brief time out. We'll return to more of our conversation with Ken Harrison of Promise Keepers right after we get you an update on traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Ken Harrison is with us, chairman and president of Promise Keepers. We're talking about a brand new book released by Multnomah Press called Rise of the Servant Kings, What the Bible Says About Being a Man. I tell you, Ken, one area where there's often an awful lot of confusion over this topic, and that is within the marriage relationship. A lot of guys have grown up believing that in order to really sort of take on the role that God has called them to in their marriage, they need to be the authority. They need to be the boss. But as your new book suggests, that is the farthest thing, in fact, from the truth. Well, we get to serve our wives. As Coach McCarty from Promise Keepers used to say, a godly man lays down his life for his wife. And uh, one of the things I point out in the chapter on marriage, uh, this is written to men, is that we must have empathy because... One of the things that men really don't get is our bodies don't really ever change. I mean, we, we go through puberty when we're 12 years old or so, and that's all good for us. You know, we get bigger, stronger, faster, we become men. Women's bodies are changing all the time. Puberty can be very traumatic. Um, and then, you know, you've got the menstrual cycle, you've got pregnancy, you've got menopause where women lose the ability to have kids, and a lot of them have their identity wrapped up in having kids. And so when you have that, that thing where women's bodies are changing all the time, a man needs to stop and think about that for a minute, think about how that affects his wife. And I get so upset when I hear guys talk about women are moody or women are crazy. Well, hang on for a minute. Take a look at what's going on physically between the two of you. If your body is physically the same all the time, act with some empathy. And that also extends to how we view sex within marriage. Um, as we talked about before, it's really the, the thing that brings a husband and a wife together as one flesh into the Lord, the outward appearance of his nature. But in sex, uh, a sexual encounter in, in nature can always result in a life-changing event for a woman, pregnancy. And if you think about the history of the world, pregnancy a lot of times could end up in death, in, in deformation. For a man, it's a moment of self-gratification and moving on. So therefore, how we perceive sex is different between the two of us. For her, it is a major moment. For a man, it's not so much. So we need to emphasize that as well. And that brings us back to the gender fluidity nonsense. Um, If you, as a woman, can have the most amazing thing there is in life, which is the ability to create life within yourself, which a man doesn't have the ability, the idea that a man who doesn't have that ability could just declare himself to be a woman, it's just not consistent with logic. No, there's no doubt that there's a major, I mean, I, I think there's not only certainly an intellectual and emotional disconnect there, but there's, there's, a, there's a major logic disconnect. You, uh, you made reference in the, the prior segment to something that I hope guys really see the connection to when it comes to this notion of, of, of servant leadership, and particularly in the home, that it's not about, you know, pounding your fist and I'm going to be the authority here, but rather providing leadership 
being the responsible one, too, uh, before God in caring for your family. And you referred to this notion that we should do so and love our wives as Christ loved the church. And I think a lot of guys sort of glean over that and say, well, of course, Christ loved the church that nice. I love my wife, too. She knows that I told her once when we got married. But when you think about the fact that the way Christ ultimately loved the church was by dying for it, wow. Now, that puts a whole different take on leadership now, doesn't it, and on servanthood. Yeah, so if we look at leadership for a man in marriage, what does that mean? It means being accountable for the state of the marriage and your kids. And it doesn't mean, and I go into this quite in detail, it doesn't mean that you're at fault, but it means you're accountable. That is to say, if things aren't right in my marriage, then how might I be to blame and what will I do to fix it? Not how is my wife to blame and how can I blame her? Same with our kids. You know, I had somebody furious with me a couple of weeks ago. I was talking to a man who was complaining about the state of the world and about millennials and all the stuff you hear so often. And, and I said, well, that's our fault. What do you mean? Well, if these kids who are now young adults don't understand God's word, they don't understand life, they don't have an identity as a male or a female, we're the ones who are responsible to teach them. We broke down. And to watch him unable to, to take accountability for the state of his own children, I thought, boy, we men really, really have a lot to learn. Yeah, in, indeed so. Now, I, I want to pivot to another topic, if I might, because uh, a lot of folks here in the Bay Area that have been around for a while fondly remember uh, the many Promise Keeper events that filled the Oakland Coliseum. We carried many of those events live here on KFAX. Give us some insight, if you would, Ken, into the, the new era of Promise Keepers. I couldn't help but think when you introduced me, there's a lot of people sitting in traffic right now in the area going, Promise Keepers, is that still a thing? Um, it is. It's coming back in an unbelievable way. And we just announced two days ago um, we're going to be in Dallas Cowboy Stadium on July 31st and August 1st of 2020. It's our first event back. And Promise Keepers, um, its identity is, we talked a lot about identity today, it is a men's gathering in an NFL stadium. It's not, anything else is not really Promise Keepers, and so it's sort of faded in time. But the thing I hear over and over again from literally hundreds of men in tears have come to me and said, you can't imagine the feeling of 70,000 men singing Amazing Grace and guys repenting of their sin and in tears and embracing each other. I had a call from a black man two weeks ago who told me he was raised in Detroit and never knew a white man. And he was at a Promise Keepers event. And when that moment came and guys were hugging him and telling him they loved him, he said, you know, Ken, that's the first time a white man ever looked me in the eye like I was an equal. And so Promise Keepers was this life-changing event. It's coming back. It'll always be an NFL stadium, and we'll do it once a year every year with a different theme and different speakers in a different NFL city. And so the kickoff will be Dallas Cowboys Stadium, summer of 2020, which ironically, and I didn't choose the date on purpose, it is the weekend between the Democratic and Republican National Convention. <laughs> a good timing on that. Can imagine. Yeah. Very good timing. Well, we're, we're, we're glad to hear that the organization is going on. I know that many, many men here in Northern California had their lives uh, touched in a phenomenal way um, by being involved with Promise Keepers, not certainly just at uh, the big gatherings at the Oakland Coliseum, uh, but many of the other events, uh, smaller events that have taken place throughout the Bay Area in Northern California. And uh, we're thrilled that the vision of Coach Bill McCartney that began back in the early 1990s will continue on and that new generations of men can have their lives impacted by this 
wonderful ministry, and might I add, by a wonderful book that really helps to bring home uh, a biblical perspective on what it means to be a servant leader, a servant king. The book is called Rise of the Servant Kings, What the Bible Says About Being a Man. This is no pussyfooting around. This is a frank discussion by a guy that's got a lot of years having worked in not just uh, business at the corporate level, but as a, a peace officer and now as the current chair and president of Promise Keepers. Uh, good job on the book, Ken. We appreciate you sharing it with us. We appreciate you sharing your time today with us and hope we'll get a chance to do it again soon. Well, thank you, Craig. I appreciate it. Again, the book called Rise of the Servant Kings, What the Bible Says About Being a Man, newly released by Multnomah Press. You'll find it the usual suspects, Amazon.com, Bay Area Christian Bookstores. You can also get it online at riseoftheservantkings.com. And there's Ken Harrison, president of Promise Keepers. Okay, we're going to turn a corner here, help you get around that corner. When we come back, no less than five states, count them, five states in the news today on the pro-life front. We'll get in detail as to what's going on as we're joined by Brian Johnston, the Western Regional Director of the National Right to Life Committee, right after this, 6 o'clock from KFAX. Let's get a look at some traffic just ahead of headline news. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. 